You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm going to ask you for something. Wait, wait. I know I've asked things like put up a review on Amazon or go to our Facebook group at facebook.com slash earn and invest. But this morning, I'm going to ask you for something. I've been doing Earn and Invest, originally What's Up Next Now, for over three years. And generally, it is my joy to produce these podcast episodes, to have these conversations, to build our community. I would say that I would do this for free, but that's pretty silly because pretty much I do do this for free, right? I mean, I do have some advertisements, et cetera, but that really covers the bare bones costs of running a podcast. The goal is really never to ask for anything in return, but today I'm going to. You guys have all heard me talk about the fact that I have a book coming out. It's actually going to be in six months. That's right, early August, taking stock will come to life. And right now, I just finished the editing process and we're in the midst of layout. And I'm trying to think, how am I going to get this book to not just our community, but people who are new to our community, people who don't know about Earn Invest? And this is where I'm going to ask you for something. I am setting up a ground team, a group of earn and investors, people who really dig this podcast, who buy into Doc G, me, Jordan Grummet, who like what I'm producing. I'm asking you all out there to become part of my ground team. Now, not really asking for much. What this means is you sign up, you get a newsletter, you're going to get some extra video and audio content. But what it means is for that week around the time where I drop the book in August, I'll be sending out emails and asking for simple things that pretty much take you a moment or two. Retweet something I put out there, share an interview. If you have a copy of the book, take a picture and put it up on the internet. Some really simple things that you can do during that week of launch that will help me get the word out about earn and invest about this book taking stock and about my message about what the dying have to teach us about money and life. I'd really love to have you part of my ground team. I'm looking for hundreds of people. This is non-binding. You can sign up if you decide to do nothing. That's also fine. But join me, become part of this ground team. If you love Earn and Invest, if you like what I'm putting out every week, this is a chance for you to show your appreciation and deepen your connection to this community. It is really simple to sign up. Just go to earnandinvest.com. The first thing you'll see is a picture of a book, and all you have to do is click on it, and that's how you'll become part of our ground team. Check it out, earnandinvest.com. Become part of the ground team for the Taking Stock book launch. I totally appreciate it. And now let's get to today's show. We're talking to Christine Benz about safe withdrawal rates. What should yours be and does it matter? Take a listen. I hope you love the show. Hi, I'm Christine Benz. This is the Earn and Invest podcast. When I came to the conclusion that I was sick and tired of being a doctor, one question loomed largely in my mind. How much money did I need? The question paralyzed me and in many ways thwarted my early attempts to leave medicine. 
Upon discovering the financial independence community, a magical concept in many ways answered that question. The 4% safe withdrawal rule was based on William Bangin's research and in its most simple form says that I can withdraw 4% of my invested assets each year for up to 30 years. My relief at answering this most difficult question, however, was short-lived as I found that major economists and financial experts whom I had grown to trust disagreed and still do today. Last year, William Bangin himself suggested 4.5%, yet noted economist Wade Fow says 4% is too high. Let's listen to a clip from financial planner Michael Kitsis from a recent appearance on the Motley Fool Answers podcast on the history of the 4% safe withdrawal rate and why he disagrees with Fow. The safe withdrawal rate, if you just look back at the overall historical average, like you know, re- returns the past 150 years and what was the safe withdrawal rate that would have worked on average, it's actually about six to six and a half percent. Now, the problem with that, right, if I imagine saying, well, since the average withdrawal rate was six six percent, I'm going to withdraw six percent, is it's kind of like the 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 person who walks through a river that has an average depth of five feet. Like you may keep your head above water most of the time, but then you get to the deep part and you drown. If you look back even at the original Bengen research, like that's where this 4% rule safe withdrawal rate came from. It was this acknowledgement of, okay, well, the average withdrawal rate that would have worked historically is is about 6%, but I don't want to do this based on the average because sometimes the average gets pretty – we get results that are much worse than the average. I want to know how bad it gets when it's really, really bad. The whole origin of the 4% rule in the first place was really nothing more than Bill Bengen ran this chart that looked at all of the different withdrawal rates that would have worked over the better part of 100 plus years of history. And what he found was the worst thing we've ever seen, the worst, 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 worst scenario we've ever seen of anything in history had a withdrawal rate of 4.15%, which Bill rounded to 4.1 and then the industry rounded to 4. And that's where we came out with the 4% rule. Christine Benz is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and author of 30-Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step guide to managing your finances, and the Morningstar Guide to Mutual Funds, Five-Star Strategies for Success. She recently co-authored with her colleagues, John Reckenthaler and Jeffrey Patak, a report titled The State of Retirement Income, Safe Withdrawal Rates. Where using forward-looking estimates for investment performance and inflation, they estimate that the standard rule of thumb should be lowered to 3.3% from 4%. Christine, welcome back to Earn and Invest. A basic question as I listen and think about all this, why the heck is there so much disagreement on safe withdrawal rates and why does it get so emotional? It's a really great question, Doc, and that's why we wanted to delve into it with our research. A lot of very thoughtful people disagree about this topic. And with our research, we really didn't want to scare anyone. We didn't want to spook people into thinking that they had to live very frugally in retirement. But we did want to try to be realistic and forward-looking rather than looking back on history, as Michael was just discussing. We wanted to try to look forward and think about, well, what are the raw materials for investment portfolios that investors are confronting today? They have very low bond yields. They have high equity valuations. And so how might that affect the withdrawal rates that retirees who are embarking on retirement today could safely take. So I think that there's a tension between looking forward as we intended to do and looking back into history as a lot of the research has done. I think if you are incorporating the fact that yields are really low, so bond and cash returns are apt to be not great, as well as the fact that sober market participants shouldn't expect a lot from stocks over the next decade, I think you arrive at the the point where you would suggest that retirees should be circumspect with respect to their withdrawal rates today. You mentioned this idea of looking forward as opposed to looking back. Talk about Bill Bangin's original research. Was it accepted at the time? I mean, this was the 1990s when he came out with this. What? How did people react to it? Well, it, it was groundbreaking. It was pathbreaking. I wasn't really working on financial planning matters in 1994. I was more sort of a fund analyst type person. But we recently had Bill Bengen on our Morningstar podcast where we talked about the research. And I asked him, you know, what had people been doing before you came up with this 4% guideline? 
And I think what his conclusion was, was that people were so yield oriented back in those days, yields were so much higher that it really wasn't something that people worried too much about. Their portfolios delivered them the yield that they needed to live on and they made do with whatever yields were. And why his research was so pathbreaking was that it really broke ground for what we were embarking on in that period of the early 90s, where we had yields go down and stay down and yields for much of that subsequent 30, well, 25 plus year period just were not livable for most retirees. So it, it, it's it's seminal work. It's still super important. I think it, it anchors everything that we worked on in our paper. And just for clarification purposes, you know, a lot of us talk about the 4% safe withdrawal rate, but don't really understand the details. I mean, there's some fine print there, right? Like you have to understand that it's for a particular asset allocation. When we're talking about longevity, right? We're talking about a certain number of years. Talk about some of those fine print details that sometimes people forget to think about. Right. And they're all important swing factors. So it's important as you approach this and you're kind of thinking about your own plan, line up your own variables alongside those variables that underpin the 4% guideline to decide whether that even makes sense for you. So in Bengen's research and in our research and a lot of the research in between, it assumed a 25 to 30-year time horizon in retirement. It assumed a more or less balanced portfolio between stocks and bonds. It assumed a certain probability of success. So in our research, we aimed for a 90% probability of success, meaning that someone embarking on that withdrawal strategy would have a 90% shot of not running out of funds during their retirement time horizon. So if, if people are approaching this decision and for whatever reason, their situation doesn't match those underpinnings, then you would want to calibrate accordingly. And then importantly, Doc, I think it's important to talk about when we're talking about 4%, we're not saying 4% in perpetuity. We're saying if you have a $1 million portfolio in year one of retirement, you get to take $40,000 out. If inflation runs at 3% in the following year, you're at 41 200 and on down the line. So you're taking that initial 4%, then you're giving yourself an annual nudge up for inflation to that dollar amount subsequently. So it's important to understand that. I think there's a lot of confusion when when people hear 4%, they sometimes think 4% on down the line. In reality, that would just bump someone around too much in terms of their withdrawals that they're, you know, one year they're living high on the hog and then the next year they're, you know, having to make do on much, much less. So I think most of us would agree that taking sort of that fixed percentage withdrawal is not going to be a solution for most people. Bill Bangin and and in our research, as we thought about it, we thought about people wanting to have a somewhat stable standard of living throughout their retirement time horizon. As we mentioned, Bill Bangin's original research was, what, I think in 1994, sometime around then. Why over at Morningstar did you think that 2021 was the time to really dig deep and readdress this? Well, we have a little team dedicated to retirement planning and portfolio construction and financial planning. And it's really just one of the key things that people worry about when they think about their plans or when when they're testing the viability of what they've managed to save so far. How do you gauge the adequacy of that? You talked about that thing that nagged at you when you thought about whether you were able to retire. It's a key question that keeps people up at night. And so we wanted to try to look into the future as much as you can do that, but using sort of a sober market outlook. And we have some great researchers at Morningstar who were able to help us create an asset class return forecast, which is what we needed to do kind of this forward-looking view. We had to incorporate a sense of what we thought the stock and bond markets might return. So we have some researchers in-house who were able to help us with that. But we really did want to look at that question because we think it's just a a key question for so many people who are accumulating for retirement or who are already in drawdown mode. 2020 and 2021 have been different than any other years because of the pandemic. As you were doing the original research, 
did you think about the pandemic unto itself as affecting how things would look financially in the future? Or was it pretty much looking at the numbers without spending a lot of time thinking about the pandemic as its own phenomenon? Yeah, we didn't spend too much of a time, too much time thinking about the role of the pandemic. We were thinking mainly about equity market valuations and low bond yields as being determinants of what people might expect to earn on their portfolios. So we weren't spending too much time thinking about how macroeconomic factors or sort of secular forces might affect how portfolios behave. Part of that conversation with Michael Kitsis that I played the clip for you, he gets deeper into some of those really difficult financial times in the past that were part of Bangin's study. He talks about 1929. He talks about the 1960s. He said that even at the worst of it, for a 15-year period, even if all your portfolio made was real returns, i.e. inflation-adjusted returns of 1% for 15 years straight, he still felt that the 4% safe withdrawal rate would hold. When I look at a report like yours where we say, okay, we really have to take a look again at this number and, and maybe go lower, it reminds me of this idea that we're pretty much saying that things today are fundamentally different than they've been in the past. How do you think today is different such that we'd want to change our philosophy when it comes to safe withdrawal rates? How how would they compare to, let's say, like in the 1929 era or the 1960s? Is there a fundamental difference today that would really make us change that number? I don't know that there's a difference. There are some commonalities, certainly with the 60s, 70s period that I see. I think the high equity valuations, the prospect of higher interest rates loom large, certainly today. Another wild card in this that was certainly a force in the 70s is inflation. And I think, you know, when I think about our research and when we issued our research initially, I think one of my worries was, oh, maybe this is too conservative. We would hate to get people underspending, especially in the early years of their retirements, which are kind of from a lifestyle standpoint, sort of the pent up demand years. But I guess sort of as I was having those nagging worries, then inflation came on strong. And I started thinking, well, we did only model in 2.2% inflation. And right now we're seeing higher inflation than that. So even if we are too conservative with sort of our baseline 3.3%, if inflation persists, and I think it's an open question whether that'll be the case, but if inflation persists, then I think I'm comfortable being more conservative. So uh, there's a lot in there, but I do think that the confluence of very low starting yields, very high equity valuations and the wild card prospect of higher inflation is a negative convergence for new retirees. And this was something we talked about with Bill Bangan as well, where he felt like the inflation piece was really the thing that was worrying him. And his point to us was that if inflation starts strong early in your retirement, so you have to lift your withdrawals to maintain your standard of living, his point was that that tends to be persistent, that it tends to just get built on. So even if inflation cools off, you're still uh, spending from an elevated level. So I thought that that was an interesting point that, you know, we talk a lot about sequence of return risk for new retirees. So encountering, usually in that context, you think about encountering a bad equity market. His point was inflation is subject to that same sequencing risk. If you encounter a bum sequence of inflation where you have in high inflation high right out of the gate in retirement, that tends not to settle down entirely. It tends to be something that you bring forward in terms of your spending. So I think that that's something that I've been thinking a lot about is the role of inflation in all of this. We were conservative in terms of our inflation assumptions. Yeah, it reminds me of how static these type of calculations are. In my introduction, I talked about Bill Bangin suggesting that 4.5% might be a reasonable safe withdrawal rate. That was about a year and some ago. And at that time, he was also talking about adding a small cap weighting, probably to increase equity returns. From your conversation with him, does it sound like 
he's changed his mind on some of that stuff? Well, it sounds like he was sort of revisiting it, certainly, given inflation. It seemed that the the inflation forecast was the main thing that put his assertion that higher a higher withdrawal rate may be doable. It seems like that's the main thing that was putting that at risk. But certainly he does talk about how incorporating small caps, in fact, quite a heavy small cap emphasis, has the potential to lift results. And that's something that we didn't really experiment with in our research at all. But his view is that by adding a heavy dose of small caps, one could lift their withdrawals. I'm not sure about that, but that's certainly a a thesis of his. You know, it begs a real important question because what you're talking about is variability of asset allocation. And when we're looking at this idea of a safe withdrawal rate, we're really talking about a general phenomenon for lots for large swaths of people. But we as individuals don't act as a general population. We act as individuals, and therefore we can do things like change our asset allocation. How important is this conversation for the individual investor? Because again, there are variables we can change. How much does what the experts say is the safe withdrawal rate have to do with what your individual investor does on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, we were talking earlier about how you know there are these assumptions that underpin the 4% guideline. And so I would spend some time looking at your own situation and seeing whether it squares with some of those assumptions. And if it doesn't, then you'd want to make a, an adjustment to your withdrawal plan accordingly. So for example, if you're someone who has 20 years that you expect to live in retirement. So maybe you're retiring and you're 75 and you're taking your first withdrawals at that point. Well, then you're someone who can afford to take a higher withdrawal rate. On the other hand, young retirees who have 40 years or more expected in retirement need to, ought to be more conservative with their withdrawal rates. So I believe in our research, we found that people who have a 40-year time horizon in retirement should be looking at, I hate to say it, more like an under, like a 2.9% withdrawal rate, assuming that they have a balanced portfolio. Asset allocation figures in here as well, although not as much as you might expect. And that I think a lot of people might look at this problem, look at like look at what we're talking about right now, and say, "Okay, easy, I've got it figured out. I'm just going to hold 90% in stocks or 80% in stocks," because historically, stocks have been the thing to lift withdrawals. They've been the thing that have have bailed out a lot of people. The fact that stocks have dramatically outperformed bonds. The problem is, is that if you really swing for the fences in terms of holding too much in stocks, then you're subject to that sequence of return risk that, that we talked about, where if you are holding too much in stocks and the market tumbles just after you retire, well, you're potentially taking too much from a dwindling portfolio. And that is the mother of all risks that you want to try to troubleshoot in retirement. So in our research, we actually found that the sweet spot in terms of the highest withdrawals generally was sort of in that balanced portfolio range in sort of the 50-50 or 60-40 range. We talked about these different variables. Longevity obviously is one Another, as you said, was asset allocation. One that I think us in kind of that early retirement camp often point to that we don't talk about often is the ability to generate some revenue. It radically can change that general safe withdrawal rate if you can bring in a little bit of income and cover some of your costs on a yearly basis. Absolutely. In fact, one thing I would say for anyone sort of embarking on this withdrawal rate discovery process is actually to not even think about withdrawal rates. Think about how you can lift your non-portfolio sources of income. So if you're willing to work in some fashion, I think that that can deliver a huge payoff in terms of delaying or reducing portfolio withdrawals, reducing the number of years that you're drawing upon that portfolio, reducing your vulnerability to sequence of return risk. That's obviously a huge 
lever. But even for people who are already retired or or getting really close to retirement who expect to fully retire and fully quit from working, whatever you can do to enlarge your non-portfolio income sources, that's job one. So that's making smart social social security filing decisions. That's making smart decisions about a pension if you're lucky enough to have one, you know, sort of considering the annuity option versus the lump sum option. It's incorporating maybe sort of out of the box sources of income like rental income that some retirees have. So thinking about your whole toolkit of non-portfolio income sources, that should precede this withdrawal rate discussion, in my opinion. It's a very valid point and makes me wonder whether we spend too much time thinking about just the safe withdrawal rate and maybe not some of those other variables is that one of the messages you think that can come from this report? Absolutely. I, I think I mentioned our goal was not to scare people. I actually thought we spent a lot of time in the paper talking about all the levers that retirees have in an effort to lift this a safe withdrawal rate. So that 3.3% message, you know, the press kind of took it and ran with it, but we felt that it was too stark because we spent a lot of time and energy in the paper talking about the other strategies that that one could use. And one whole category that we haven't really talked about is just kind of thinking about your own spending during your retirement time horizon. And that's likely to change. So in a lot of ways, I think this sort of fixed real withdrawal system, that 4% guideline is a bit of a straw man because most retirees don't really spend in that fashion. My former colleague, David Blanchett, did some really path-breaking research where he looked at the trajectory of actual retiree spending. And what he found was something that he described as the retirement spending smile, where retirement early on did entail higher spending for a lot of retirees. These are people in their late 60s or even younger than that, where they have a lot of things that they want to do. So they are, you know, doing heavy travel. They're maybe helping adult children get their lives off the ground. Those are the heavy spending years for retirees. Then the spending tended to to trail down in the middle years of retirement. And then for some retirees, it trailed up again later in life to accommodate higher healthcare expenditures. So I think that really being thoughtful about how you expect your own retirement to play out to the extent that you can sort of predict the future, but you can predict things like, oh, you know, I think our roof is 22 years old. So it's possible that within the next five to eight years, we're going to have to replace that thing. And my spouse's car is now seven years old and we like to keep our cars maybe for eight to 10 years. So we think within the next couple of years, we'll have to buy a car. So to try to get ahead of some of those big ticket expenses, but also just to think about how your own spending patterns might change over your retirement life cycle. I think that's a really great process that retirees can run them through when kind of thinking about this. It definitely makes me think that what Bangin did with his research in the 1990s was really a Herculean task, right? He was trying to account for any and all possible market environments. And maybe it's just not realistic to put a specific number on that. Maybe we just don't know what's going to happen in the future. And one number can't cover all events. I completely agree. In fact, I think, you know, with respect to so much about the markets and financial planning, a healthy dose of humility, I think, is in order. And so to the extent that we can all sort of bring that humility to jobs like this, humility and flexibility, I think are hugely important because I do think that staying flexible in the face of, you know, it sort of as your retirement pro- progresses, I think is hugely beneficial. So to the extent that retirees are willing to be flexible about their withdrawals, willing to shape their withdrawals in line with what's going on with the markets and in turn their portfolios, that redounds to their benefit. We are talking to Christine Benz. She is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and author of 30-Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step guide to managing your finances. 
I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Have you been considering investing in real estate? If you have, the best place to go to learn about this asset class is the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. Here, Chad, a.k.a. The Coach, talks about real estate and gives you all the tips and tricks But not only that, but he has guests on real proof of concept about how to reach financial independence by mastering this tricky asset class. Check them out. Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson. It is a must listen to if you think real estate is going to be part of your financial holdings. The easiest way to get there is to go to CoachCarson.com. Again, CoachCarson.com. Take a listen. You won't regret it. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Christine Benz. She is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. And along with John Reckenthaler and Jeffrey Patak, wrote a report titled The State of Retirement Income Safe Withdrawal Rates. Christine, let's talk about how this research has affected you. Have you found that it's changed your own feelings about either your own portfolio or about your retirement trajectory? It's such a good question, Doc. Not my portfolio. I tend to be an extremely inert, hands-off investor. That is an active choice. I just find that less is more in terms of managing my own portfolio. I tend to, I, you know, in the category of do as I say, not as I do, I do tend to have a pretty equity-heavy portfolio. It's just sort of what I'm comfortable with. But I do think of myself as probably several years away from retirement. But in any case, it it has changed how I think about retirement in that one key thing I want for my own retirement is try to try to align my fixed expenditures with non-portfolio income sources. So, you know, as my husband and I think about our own retirement, that's really something we are going to try to achieve. So we both plan to delay social security filing in an effort to enlarge our benefits. We've been kind of a dual earner couple couple throughout our career. And so we, we've we decided that's the best strategy for us. But we also think that we might purchase some type of a, a, an annuity, some type of a fixed annuity, a really plain vanilla. I know a lot of people, you know, their hackles immediately go up when you say annuity. I'm not talking about like the crummy, expensive, opaque annuity type. I'm talking about a very plain vanilla, low cost annuity. But the idea would be I'd like to try to find a way to align our fixed expenses with our uh, income sources. So I think that that will give us a lot more flexibility to 
incorporate some of the flexible strategies for withdrawals. I think that, you know, knowing that we have our, our fixed in, fixed expense needs set aside through non-portfolio income sources, it'll just make us more accommodative if we need to make changes in terms of how much we pull from our portfolios. Wade Fow talks a lot about fixed annuities. And certainly, I believe it's a pretty wise thing to do as you get to a stable place financially and you're looking at retirement. I guess the big problem is always figuring out the fine print, right? The problem with most annuities and SPIAs is that we just have to make sure we understand what we're buying. Once we do, they can be incredibly stabilizing to a portfolio. I think so. And, you know, I would say a key drawback to annuities, in my opinion, is just the lack of inflation protection that many of them carry. And I would say that's sort of a key nagging worry for me. I wish the marketplace did include more products that included that sort of inflation protection. But I, definitely knowing what you what you own is so important. I, I can't tell you the number of times someone has shown me their portfolio and I've looked at it and said, well, you know, this is an, an annuity, don't you? And they don't actually know. They've been sold some product without a full understanding of what they're buying. So if anyone's ever looking at at an annuity purchase, my advice is ask all your, and I put this in air quotes, stupid questions. There aren't any stupid questions. Ask all your questions until you're exhausted and until you're satisfied that you have the answers to to, to your fullest possible satisfaction because I do think the area can be really fraught, especially for people who aren't steeped in this. Up until this point, we've really talked about the risk of going too high on your withdrawal rate. What happens then is you run out of money. And I'm going to ask a question with the idea of Bill Perkins' recent breakout book, Die With Zero, on our minds. What do you think the risk is of being too conservative with your safe withdrawals? It's huge. And that's why I think, you know, I would caution or I would, I wouldn't caution, but I would emphasize that we weren't hoping to spook people. We, we want people to live their best lives in retirement. It's, it's crucial. And that's why I would say for people who are in that mode of sort of what, what do they call it? Last breath, last dollar, where you're, you want to spend it all. Look at some of the strategies like the guardrail strategy, which was developed by Jonathan Guyton and William Klinger. John Guyton was helpful to us as we worked on this research paper. It's called the guardrail strategy, but the basic idea is that it's an efficient way of consuming your portfolio. So it means that, yes, you have to take those haircuts in down markets periodically if things get bad, but it also means that you can give yourself raises in a year like 2020 or 2021 when the market's really good. And the net effect of those periodic course corrections, as is inherent in a guardrails approach, is that it's it's more efficient and you consume your portfolio throughout your lifetime you're not dying with a big chunk of money at the end of your lives, which for a lot of retirees is not what they're going for. Some retirees might say, well, no, I absolutely do want to leave money for my children or grandchildren or charity or whatever it might be. But a lot of retirees do want to live their best lives, especially if they have tighter plans where you know there's a big difference for the household where they're saying, um, they can spend $40,000 a year versus $55,000 a year. There's a big quality of life difference there. So I think that people who are in that situation, who have tighter plans, they should explore some of these more variable, flexible strategies, which help them consume their portfolios more efficiently. Tell me, Christine, did you get much criticism for your safe withdrawal report? And if so, what were the main ideas behind it? I would say it was gentle criticism from people, and I'm not sure we got criticism from Michael Kitsis directly, but we certainly solicited feedback from David Blanchett, our former colleague, for example, who does feel like 4% is is still a pretty good starting point in part because retiree spending tends to trail down. So I would say that was one of the most valid criticisms that we took to heart and tried to address in the paper was this assertion that, well, if spending naturally trends down during retirees' life cycle, maybe 4% is, is an okay starting point. So that was one piece of criticism that we did try to weave into the paper as we worked on it. 
Did you ever feel there was criticism based on the fact that you work for Morningstar? So you work in a financial services company. Do people ever come back to you and say, well, of course you're going to say, you know, that it's that you need to work longer and invest more. You know, you work for a company that profits from that. Do you ever get that thrown at you? No, but I will say it's something I've been thinking about, not the withdrawal rates research specifically, but I was talking with Ramit Sethi on our podcast, our Morningstar podcast, and he he raised that point that the financial, I call it the financial complexity complex, but the, the financial services industry really does have this vested interest in keeping people hanging on to their money. And it's it's kind of this this conundrum where you do have a lot of segments of our population who are way underspending, sorry, way overspending and undersaving. But I think potentially the thing we don't think about is that you have people, especially given how good the market has been, you have people at the other end of the spectrum who have more money than they'll ever need in their lifetimes. And urging them to spend it mindfully, I think, is is something that we need to be talking more about and probably are spending too much time talking about the saving and investing part of the ledger for a, a good segment of our audience. So most of us in the Earn and Invest community like to learn about personal finance. We like to hear people and their research about safe withdrawal rates, but this is not our expertise. So for us listening, what should we have taken from this report? How should how should we integrate this into how we think about our finances? It's a good question. I think thinking about yourself as a unique individual with unique variables, a unique time horizon, unique risk appetite, all of those things are really important. I would say if there's one key takeaway from our research for lay people, well, maybe two, one is that given what one might reasonably expect from the market over the next decade, if you're just embarking on retirement, that it does make sense to maybe start off a little bit conservatively and know that you could potentially adjust upward if you safely make it through, say, the first five years of retirement and you haven't had a really bad equity market that maybe you could take a little bit more. But then another key piece of advice that I would impart to lay people is just staying flexible, staying flexible with withdrawals throughout your retirement time horizon, monitoring what's going on in your portfolio. I think that most retirees don't just sort of set a withdrawal rate and then kind of wash their hands of it. Mm -hmm. It's important to re-engage, probably annually check in on your withdrawal rate and be willing to rein things in a little bit if your portfolio encounters a weak series of results early on in retirement. When trying to decide whether to be more conservative or more aggressive, if we kind of follow your advice and we keep our eyes open and at least annually pay attention, are there some good signs that we can point to and say, aha, maybe I can be more aggressive or maybe I should be less aggressive? What would you tell us to look at in the market or in general to help us decide which direction to go in? That's a good question. I would say that monitoring your withdrawal rate relative to whatever system you set out at the outset of your retirement is a key thing to help keep you on track. I wouldn't get overly caught up in trying to to sort of forecast what might happen, but it seems like if in the year after your portfolio has suffered a big loss, if you can plan to take a little bit less in that subsequent year, I think that that can redound to your benefit in terms of helping your withdrawals be sustainable over your over your whole time horizon. So in our research, we looked at some really modest tweaks to that 4% guideline. So I would say that the the guardrail strategy is, is a little bit more aggressive in terms of requiring more frequent course corrections. But you can look at just these modest adjustments like simply foregoing an inflation adjustment after the year in which your portfolio has had a loss. We found that that helped lift starting withdrawals meaningfully for new retirees and also helped lift lifetime withdrawals a bit versus just sort of that starting 3.3% and inflation adjusting. So there are more modest tweaks that people can employ as well. I like that so much. I'm going to repeat it in my own words. 
It sounds like what you're saying to me, and which I think is really important, is as opposed to trying to guess what's going to happen in the future and change your portfolio based on that or your safe withdrawal rate based on that, look at what happened in the past year and adjust with what you already know has happened, which to me sounds like a much smarter strategy because the past is known, but the future isn't. Right, exactly. And, you know, by by reacting after a one-year period, you're giving yourself a little bit of a course correction in time for uh, further negative events to occur. Because we often know, we know that market environments aren't usually over any, bad market environments aren't usually over in a year, that they can often be persistent for two years or three years or even more. So you're kind of catching it early if you make the, those course corrections after a single year. You mean that the pandemic downturn of two months is not the norm? <laughs> no, the, what do they call it? The teddy bear market, <laughs> um, not the norm, unfortunately. The norm is when people like us start sort of second guessing whatever asset allocation we've set up. People who are generally pretty comfortable taking risk and comfortable with our plans. I sort of remember that early 2000s period, especially where I was like, what am I even doing? You know, that the nagging questions that can occur when things really drag on for a long period of time. Right now, we are in the midst of what has been dubbed the Great Resignation. Now, of course, not all those people are retiring, but probably some are. Tell me about your personal opinion of 2022 as a year to retire. Well, I think that retirees should be circumspect about uh, market returns. They should take to heart some of the sort of conservative guidance in our paper. But one thing I love, Doc, that I see unfolding during this pandemic is I've been thinking of it as sort of the porous border between work and retirement, where it's no longer this bright line for so many people. And I think the pandemic, one of the silver linings of this pandemic has been for older workers, especially, they've been given the flexibility to many of them to work where they want, maybe even work when they want. And so I think that people who are embarking on retirement or sort of thinking about retirement should potentially take advantage of that flexibility because we when we look at the research about working in some fashion either it's in a fashion that provides income or in some charitable endeavor or whatever it might be there's a lot of good that comes with that that's not just financial so it's the social engagement it might be a bit of physical activity it's getting out of the house so you're not driving your spouse nuts all kinds of things can come along with uh, working and so I do think that that's something that is a trend that has been born of this pandemic, but I think it's here to sit today, and I think it is incredibly beneficial to new retirees who might kind of dabble in having a foot in work while also still enjoying some of the fruits of their labors and enjoying having some additional time away from work. Work is definitely one of those toggles we can use to prolong our assets so that we can live longer with them and, and in a sense, help us change our personal safe withdrawal rate. You know, the other one we haven't really talked a lot about, but it is also true is returns. There are a lot of very hawkish people out there right now who are saying equities are going to have poor returns over the next decade. They're saying bonds are going to have low yields and using that as a platform to talk a lot about alternative investments and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about, as opposed to changing your safe withdrawal rate, this idea of really trying to push those investment returns up. Do you think this is a good time to start thinking about alternative assets? Well, I would say it's a big tent that a lot a lot of different assets tend to fall under. So you might have assets like private equity, for example, which is sort of a high-returning, high-risk asset that is sometimes thrown under the alternatives tent. And then there are these, I would say, a suite of alternative strategies, whether managed futures or market neutral strategies like that, that tend to deliver a risk return profile kind of between stocks and bonds. And 
that latter category is one that I've been hearing more about in the context of the current environment. Certainly, there are people who believe that private equity will have very good returns, better than the public equity markets over the next decade. That may be a valid point. I don't know. But been hearing more about sort of the low-risk alternative category. That group arguably has not had a market environment that has given it a chance to shine over the past 12 years. We've had great bond market returns, great stock market returns. Alts just haven't distinguished themselves. I happen to believe that most investors probably don't need them because even the the newer, lower cost products are still not inexpensive. I think you can achieve what you need to achieve with a more plain vanilla asset allocation. It's just my personal view. I know that I have some colleagues at Morningstar who are more enthusiastic about alts as a component of of portfolios. I'm I'm a little less sanguine. I think that plain vanilla is just fine for most investors. Christine, we've mentioned this idea that the media and the press have glommed on to this difference between safe withdrawal rates of 4 and 3.3%, in a sense, almost a pessimistic look. Tell us, after doing this research and writing this report, are you optimistic about the possibility of living off your safe withdrawal rates and retirement here in America today? I am. And it might seem counterintuitive, but the key reason is that you know we're not talking about percentage withdrawals. We're talking about dollar withdrawals. And so the great thing is, is that we've had this tremendous stock market and that has buoyed a lot of portfolios. If you if you have a sort of a sane, you know, normal portfolio mix that includes some stocks, your portfolio is a lot larger today than it was five years ago. So 3.3% of a larger amount may be a bigger withdrawal than 4% would have been of a smaller amount five or 10 years ago. So I think that new retirees, prospective retirees get what their take-home withdrawals might be. If they haven't looked at their balances recently, they may be pleasantly surprised at how well their portfolios have performed and that the 3% or 3.3%, whatever it might be, might be perfectly doable. Well, Christine, I wanted to thank you for coming on this show today. We started by talking about safe withdrawal rates and this idea that there could be this global safe withdrawal rate that would work for anyone at any time. But what I'm really getting from this conversation is we should really be looking at our own personal safe withdrawal rates. And instead of spending a lot of time worrying about those things we can't control, which are like the equity markets or the bond yields, we should spend a lot more time thinking about what we can control, which is our own activities, our own investments, and our own ability to look back each year and make adjustments as we see fit. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you. Tell us what's going on in your life right now, and especially about the Longview podcast, because we haven't talked much about that. I keep name dropping about that podcast talk, but it is a a fun side project that my colleague Jeff Patak and I have been working on for, gosh, almost three years now, where we interview someone weekly, usually a thought leader in investing or personal finance or retirement planning. And I have to say, it's just been a tremendous source of inspiration for me, spending time with these people, researching their subject matter. So we have some good guests coming up. I won't tease any specific names, but I'm happy with the the people we have on the docket, including one of the leading lights in the fire movement. So we will be talking to that person and I'm excited about that one. So another thing that I've been working on, just started work on for this year is some work on diversification and correlations among asset classes, which sounds terribly arcane, but the basic (laughs) idea is if you have stocks in your portfolio, what's the best thing to add to help diversify that stock exposure. So last year, we did a research paper where we looked at this issue. It turned out that very plain vanilla fixed income investments were the best diversifiers over the period that we surveyed, which went back, I think, 
15 years. Whether we'll find that's the case again as we revisit the topic, that's sort of an open question, but it's it's some research that we've been revisiting annually in attempt to, to give investors some sense of where they should be positioning their portfolios, especially if they want to have true diversification as opposed to what I think of as kind of faux diversification. So that's something that's kind of in the works and should be out later in the quarter. And if people want to interact with you or ask you questions, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, Twitter is, a, I would say, a good source of contact. My Twitter handle is Christine underscore Benz. That's probably the best public-facing sort of way to engage with me. I'm on there a lot. I learn a lot from individual investors as well as financial advisors and other people like you who I know via Twitter. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Christine Benz. That's a wrap. Very cool. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Was there anything you feel like, so I I always record the after show and usually put it at the end. Is there anything you feel we didn't talk about that you would have liked to or part of the report or the research you feel we didn't get to? No, you were very thorough and I appreciate that. So thank you. I I, I love the conversation because I I do think we get caught in the weeds and it's very... um, You know, it's fun for insiders, quote unquote, to really start arguing those numbers. Um, But it is true that what we see in the end is to your average Joe and Jane, a lot of that detail isn't important, right? It's more of the psychology of how they go about taking care of their money and, again, how much attention they pay and how careful they are. And that can't be reflected in a number. It can't be reflected by 4%. It can't be reflected by 3.3. It, it really has to do with individual behavior. Um, and I, I think Very much we so. all forget that. Very much so. And, you know, another thing I keep, I keep in mind is education level. And I don't mean educational attainment. I mean, just knowledge of these matters. A lot of people do not have a good working knowledge of what is a safe withdrawal rate. I know that Fidelity has periodically revisited these surveys with investors where some of the participants have said that they thought that 10% was probably a safe withdrawal rate. So we want to try to be educating people about, you know, what's a good starting point when thinking about this problem? Um, Because I think there is a little bit of an educational void. Yeah, like uh, it's true. Again, I think those of us who spend a lot of time thinking about these things love to talk about it, but I'm not sure how good that does the general population. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Well, yeah, I I think these these periodic looks at the research when it comes to safe withdrawal rate, I think is is important too, because I I think we do have to keep on looking back at it because the idea that something that was done in 1990s could be durable forever also doesn't make 100% sense. So Right. And even Bengen pointed out that he's revisited that research multiple times, looking at incorporating different asset classes. He is actually much more into kind of, I would call it, I don't know if he would call it market timing, but much more into tactical asset allocation, I would say. Um, that was nice the way you said that. <laughs> these days um, than he was with the initial research, which assumed a more or less static asset allocation. And I do think that that's sort of an underplayed aspect of all of this. And I suppose it could be called market timing, but I, I don't really think of it as market timing. This idea of being thoughtful about where you pull your withdrawals, like where, which asset classes you pull your withdrawals from, um, I think could potentially help. And that was something that um, John Guyton has in his research that we didn't incorporate into our testing, but he actually has this whole idea of like in X environment, leave stocks alone, pull from here rather than like pulling pro rata from stocks and bonds. Um, so I think that there's that's another thing that we didn't talk about that I think is another way that people could potentially lift their withdrawals. That's certainly how I would approach it. Yeah. And I a lot of people, too, are talking about that kind of equity glide path, too, right? Where you start right. increasing equities again, kind of towards the end of life. Um, right. Yeah. 
And the bucket approach kind of gets you into that general framework, I would say, where, you know, if you were to sort of embark on retirement with a bucket portfolio, you could kind of spend through the safe stuff and then end up with an elevated equity weighting, you know, at age 75 or whatever. All right. Well, I will um, let you know when this is ready to come out. It's somewhere in the next four weeks. I will send you a copy of it before it goes out a few days before so you can take a listen. Um, But generally, I edit around everything I can to make a sound as good as possible, but I try not to get rid of anything because obviously that's, that's the important part of the conversation. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 